Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Real One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like We're One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything We Are One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. Volume four, we're about to bring it. Six volumes total this year. If you have never got to hear anything from these Keep Us Dangerous volumes, I think there's something special. You should check them out on YouTube. Uh, and there's all these different teachings that go with it. There's a playlist right there on YouTube, Keep Us Dangerous Volumes. And there are, I think, already 21, 22 messages, something like that. So you got a little bit of catching up to do. But listen, you'll pump through a whole season of whatever on Netflix and Hulu. And we'll spend hours on TikTok and Instagram. So 22 messages, I think you got plenty of time that you can get through some dangerous volumes. But uh, I want to kick into volume four. And this one's going to be special, a little different. I want to look specifically at a church uh, here in the book of Acts referred to as the church at Antioch. Somebody say Antioch. I kind of say Antioch because I'm lazy, but it's Antioch, okay? And I want to look in at that church because it was a really special church for a couple reasons. One, to set it up. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, this is his hometown and his home church. So this is where he comes from, ends up meeting up with the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas, like Acts 16, right? He writes about when Silas and, and Paul are in prison and they're singing at midnight. He was there. He didn't get in prison, but he was there, and so he wrote about it. But they picked him up here from Antioch. This is where he found Jesus, and it was uh, really cool because Antioch is not Emily City, you have to understand. Emily City is just kind of a long drive away from everything. But Antioch is really special because it was a launch pad for what would become the first missionary journey that the Apostle Paul is going to go on. And whether you're going land or sea, they were able to launch all over the place to begin to share the gospel. And I kind of just want to set up here a couple, uh, three verses, and it'll kind of get our heart into volume four, and then we'll go from there. You ready? Okay. Verse one. Now there were prophets and teachers at Antioch in the church that was there, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So five dudes. We'll talk about them a little bit. One, while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work to which I have called them. I just want some of y'all to know this is how it works with God, and I'm going to get there breaking this down later, but sometimes God just shows up and he wants to set you apart for something. Some of you, God is going to ask you to do things, call you to do things, want to send you places, and you weren't planning on it. You weren't expecting it. You thought you just showed up for a typical Wednesday night, but it could happen tonight as we're worshiping the Lord that God shows up and he goes, yeah, that person, I've set them aside for something. What does that mean? That means the rest of your life is going to change in the blink of an eye. It means where you thought you were headed, you ain't headed there anymore. God has different plans for you. What you thought you were capable of, God just showed you you're capable of so much more if you'd get a hold of his spirit. And it says here that they're praying, they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to break that down, set aside these two dudes. Then when they had fasted, prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. 
right from here, these first three verses, we're about to go on the first missionary journey. Now, if you were with us in volume one, he's been on many missionary journeys at that point, traveling all over. This is where it starts right here in volume four. I'm going all out of order on purpose. It all makes sense in my mind. If it doesn't on yours, don't worry. At the end of the year, we're going to take the entire dangerous volumes and put them in the correct order so you can go through and do the whole book of Acts from chapter 1 to 28. But I decided to ruin it and do it all out of order. That's why you got to read it on your own outside of here. You're bad, not mine. Are you ready? Volume 4, issue 1, Acts 13. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, we, if we didn't make it clear, you're already welcome here. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Jesus, your name, who you are, what you're about, we want to be about. You're welcome here, King Jesus. And we want tonight to be something special, just like we read here in these verses. We want to be set apart for your glory. We want to be set apart for your name. We want to be set apart for your work. And so I ask God, would you begin to do that tonight? Holy Spirit, just as you were hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1, I believe that you're hovering right now. But there is a point in which what happened in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit goes from hovering to dropping down with tongues of fire. And I ask that you'd go from the hovering state that you're in, that you'd begin to drop on individuals in this place, and you would set them apart for your glory. You would set them apart for your work that you'd call them to something that, God, they could never do in their own strength. But if, Holy Spirit, you would get a hold of them, they could do it. I ask that uh, as we just worship you, as we have, as we hear your word tonight, as we gather in this place together, I ask that you would do something that can only be the work called the Holy Spirit. It could not be man-made. It could not be manufactured by us, this place, by perfect musicianship or or the correct preaching or, or whatever. God, speak despite anything I say wrong. Just speak in spite of me if you have to. But Holy Spirit, let there be something tangible that drops as a deposit into every single heart that sets us on fire for your glory. I pray this all tonight. We believe for this. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen. Do you want something from the Holy Spirit tonight? Amen. Amen. Hey, before you're seated, I want you to like hug two people, grip them, tell them you're ready for tonight. It's going to be a good night. Okay. Let's get it. So I'm going to uh, set this up and then I, I already broke down that we're going to Acts 13. It's all going to be on the screen for you and all that jazz. But I'm about to jump out of Acts 13, make it difficult. I'll end up back there. But there's really two pieces that I want to determine here tonight out of the gate. If we're going to set up this Acts 13 journey that Paul's going to go on, there's two pieces that we need to determine, okay? Here's the first one. We need to determine how the church at Antioch was established. Now, maybe this isn't important to some people. You just showed up here and you're like, oh, has this place always been here? Do you realize that this church... This body of people is 75 years old. You recognize that? That before any of us were here and existed, that there was people that were laboring to make sure that this could all be possible. Before we had all the technology, before we had this building on this campus, before any of that existed, multiple buildings, multiple phases to get here, that there were people that just stood in the gap. At one point, when there was no pastor, there was just a Mexican woman in our community that stood in the gap and said, you know what, I'm going to keep Emily City, this church here, going, and we're here today because of that. 
I think understanding how this church was established is really important, number one. Number two, last time I checked, when we dropped off in volume two, remember when Saul of Tarsus, that's the Apostle Paul, we'll explain it here in a second, but when he's, he's on his way on a rampage to try to imprison, kill, murder Christians, Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus, that's where we left him off. Well, that's where we left off with. He encounters Jesus, road to Damascus. He ends up in Damascus. He's blind. Three days later, his eyes are healed. And it's like, where did he go from there? Well, we just read about him. It said, and Saul is how it ends. He's here at the church in Antioch. Now, I'll give you one thought. If you're not reading, the, uh, watching these extensions, you need to watch them. They're online exclusive. I put out one called, called Where's Saldo, okay? And you need to watch that one because it's going to give you a lot about the life of the Apostle Paul and how we got here. But I want to fill in a couple more gaps here to sort of, sort of help us. So we're going to go into Acts 13. But before I can go forward, I kind of need to take a couple steps back, and I need to jump into Acts chapter 11. This is why. Acts chapter 11 is going to get us to Acts 13, but it follows the same storyline, the narrative of Acts chapter 8. Okay, so I'm catching some of y'all up. This is volume 4. And volume 3, I ended with Acts chapter 8. I'm going to jar your memory. There's this dude named Philip, member. The church is persecuted, scattered. Philip ends up going to Samaria, preaching the gospel. Then he's like, no, actually don't go there. Go to this dirt road over here. He finds an Ethiopian eunuch. That dude comes to know Jesus. He's like, let's get baptized. They hop out of the chariot. He gets baptized. That storyline from Stephen being uh, stoned to death in Acts 7 to the church scattered in Acts 8 brings us here to Acts 11. Acts 11 is going to take us to Acts 13. Is everybody with me? Sorry, that's a lot of numbers. I'm like giving you, I'm just trying to like make sure you're with us and we're going to get into it. Let's start here. Ready? Acts 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered, okay, see, I'm catching you up, by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So as Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem, because of that, there was a ripple effect that continued from Acts 8. Now we're in Acts 11, and it's still a ripple effect of people just getting scattered. So people are being scattered all over that were in Jerusalem. We just read to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, which Antioch, if you didn't realize, is going to be our segue back to Acts 13 eventually here. So they're all ending up there after Stephen is stoned. But what I want you to catch here in Acts 11 the last six words of what I just read. I'll read it again just so you catch it. These people that end up there, they were spreading the word among the Jews. Why is that important for you to get? Because we do this all the time. This is Acts 11, which means it's 41 AD. That's where we are. It's been 11 years since Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit shows up in tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind, they begin to speak in other tongues, that's in 30 AD. 11 years later now, we're in Acts chapter 11. So nine chapters later is 11 years later. And so here, since then, they're only talking to the Jews about Jesus. What did Jesus say before he ascended? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is he saying? You're going to go into all the world, and you're going to tell all people about who I am, what I've done. And before I leave, I can tell you, you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You better do it. I'm not asking you. It's a command. And he takes off. 
That was like my best ascension I could do. Okay? So what's the point? 11 years later, what did we just read? And it says, and they spread Jesus only among the Jews. Is that what Jesus told them to do? Or did he say talk to everybody? See, I think we do this a lot. Christians are known to do this. We like to talk to Christians about Christ. When shouldn't we be the people that already know about who he is? So what we're called to do is go and talk to everybody else that doesn't already know about him. We're called to talk to not just Jews. Yeah, one another. That's great. That's fellowship. That's encouragement. That's building each other up. But we're called to do more than just talk to one another. I'm just relating us to like the Jewish kind of concept right here, Jew to Jew. We're supposed to go to the Gentiles. We're supposed to go into all the world. We're supposed to talk to everybody about Jesus. But it says here that they were spreading the word only among the Jews. But it gets to verse 20, and it says that some of them, however, meaning majority is only talking to the Jews, but some people actually got it. Some people were actually listening to the command. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, that's the Gentiles, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So Cyprus, right, from Jerusalem, they were spread to Phoenicia, Cyprus, this island, and then Antioch. And then Cyrene is like modern-day Libya. It's down in Africa. So at some point, some men from Cyrene and this island Cyprus, they end up in Jerusalem, but then after Stephen's killed and, like, people are spread, and they're like, ah, we got to get out of here. These men that had made their way to Jerusalem, now they're being spread back out between Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Well, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they end up coming to Antioch. And where most people, Jews, that are followers of Jesus, are talking to other Jews about Jesus, these men from Cyrene and Cyprus, they got it. It says, some men, however, that word however is important. It's like, however, meaning, finally, not some dodo birds. Some people get it. Some people were actually listening. Some people were willing to have some faith to do what Jesus told them to do. Have some guts. Grab a hold of their heart. If it's beating and I'm alive, it means I still have a mission and a plan on my life to make sure that the world knows about Jesus. Not just the people that already know. Not just the people that are easy to talk to. But the world. All people, all places need to know about Jesus. Some men, however, figured it out finally from Cyrene and Cyprus. So they come to Antioch, and they're beginning to share about who Jesus is. Let me, let me finish it with the next part right here. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You know what that's funny about that for me? Is all that it took was someone to be willing, and the Lord's hand would be with them. All that it took would be someone just to step out and say, I'll do it. I'll talk to people who are hard to talk to. I'll open my mouth when I don't even have the words and I don't have anything computing in my mind of what I'm going to say, but I'll open my mouth and I believe that if I'll just open my mouth, then the Lord through the Holy Spirit will begin to speak through me. Some men, however, are, are, are you in the category of some or of many? Because I would rather be found in a category of just some people that have it figured out than a collection blending in with the multitudes that are lost. See, it just takes you being willing, and you will see here that the Lord's hand will be upon you, and not just a few. L listen, in Philip's case, in Acts chapter 8, he goes to the Ethiopian eunuch on the dirt road, and it was just one man that got it. But in this case, 
It says that a great number of people believed and they turned to the Lord. So these men, they're taking the good news of Jesus to Antioch, and this is what they're doing. When they went to Greeks, right, who are Gentiles, so very simple if you don't know. You have Jews, Gentiles. Jews, meaning they're Hebrews, Israelites, Jewish people. Those are the names for them. Very small category. And then there is everybody else. Does anybody have uh, any Jewish descent just by any chance? Okay. So zero in the room. So raise your hand if you're a, a one. One. Okay, one. Okay, so raise your hand if you're a Gentile then. People are like, is that, is that me? Yes, that was the point I was trying to make. So are you getting the fact that in Acts 11, if they had never done this, that means you're not here and you're not able to follow Jesus because the door would have never been open for us to even have a shot. So what did they do? These men from Cyrene and Cyprus, what did they do? When they came, they leveled the playing field so that now everyone was equalized with their knee bowed at the cross. Everybody. Jew and Gentile alike, equal. That doesn't matter. Uh, that means it doesn't matter whether you are a Roman or a Samaritan. It doesn't matter whether you're a eunuch or a priest, black or white. It doesn't matter whether you are slave or free, educated or an uneducated barbarian. It doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile. You're all on the same level because of the same grace. If Jesus poured grace out in the same measure, then why would the level that we're at not be the same? So these men came to declare a message where many were spreading it only among the Jews. We've come to let everybody else. Let's just get the ratio again here. One person with some sort of Jewish descent, right, and with their heritage. Raise your hand if you're, you're a Gentile. I just want to make sure I double check again. And everybody else, we would have never had a shot if somebody hadn't made it known. Same level, same grace, same opportunity for Jesus. So these men come and do this in Antioch. This church is important. It's huge here. What's going to happen as we eventually make our way back to Acts 13? They come and they make it known that we're on the same level. So what happened? All the prejudice, all of the issues that were happening. See, the reason that um, the Jews weren't going to the Gentiles and the Jews just stuck with the Jews because there was mad major prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles. Racism between Jews and Gentiles. They didn't like each other. They didn't want to eat around each other. They didn't want to talk to each other. Issues with one another. But see, when these men from Cyrene and Cyprus came and began to evangelize to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, it opened up a door. I'm talking about a church in Antioch. Can I tell you that our church and what God is doing here doesn't mean he's doing the same exact thing everywhere. Can he? Yes. But there has to be an obedience and a willingness to take on what he wants to do. And not everybody has that. But see, the church in Antioch did. Because these men came a firepower of grace, a firepower full of truth and love to declare same level, same grace, same Jesus. Everybody gets a shot at. And it was that when they come and do that, this is what happened. All the prejudice began to just wash away. There was a unity in the church at Antioch like you can't find in other cities. Can I tell you, that's my vision, that there be, it'd be, since 2011, from the very beginning, when I was like, Lord, what, what do we call ourselves? He said, you call yourselves, we are one. And I go, okay, that's, I, I like it. And he said, because you will have a unity in this house that you can't buy, 
You can't earn. You can't get anywhere else. But you, if you will just cling to one another, believe in one another, build one another up, love each other, even rebuke each other, teach each other, challenge each other. If you'll do that, then you will have something special. You can't get just anywhere. Now, listen, I don't think we're better than anybody, but it actually does blow my mind when uh, people get, you know, have issue with us or get offense or they leave. Because you know what I think? <sighs> Good luck. Because you can't get what is happening here anywhere. Amen. Because can I tell you what's happening here is not Dave because of Dave Christ? What's, not ha- what's happening here is not just because of great pastors on staff or great leaders. What's happening here is it is a conglomeration of a bunch of different pieces that, number one, starts with the name of Jesus, a focus on Jesus. It then builds from there to a presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and then it branches into the obedience of leadership and a bunch of... It's, it's not one person, one thing. It is, it is in careful measure a bunch of things into the recipe that makes what God is doing here so special. And see, they went from prejudice with one another to unity with one another, where they were sitting down, they were talking to each other, they were eating together, they were fellowshipping together, and they weren't doing that until the door was open, that same level, same grace, same Jesus for everybody. It changes things. These men were so special when they came here to Antioch, and the message that they brought, it it didn't just change one city. You're going to find that what was happening in this one city, it's going to make its way. By the end of the message, you'll get this. It's going to make its way everywhere. So two of the men, or there's a group of them, but two of them that were a part of those, the, the, the men from Cyrene and Cyprus that came to Antioch to spread it to the Gentiles. We just read about them, and I want to clarify who they are. They brought the message to Antioch, and we read in chapter 13. I'm going to give you a taste, and then we're going to go back to 11, verse 1. Now, there were prophets and teachers at Antioch, we read. In the church that was there, and it lists them. There's Barnabas, um, Simeon, who was called Niger. And I just want to give a side note really quick, just because I, I felt like when I was reading this, I'm like, there's somebody right now in their mind that's like saying what, it look, what the word looks like, and they're like confused and misunderstanding. So Niger, and I am pronouncing it correctly because that is how you pronounce it in terms of what Scripture's saying. Niger was a nickname given to Simeon because he was a black man. And it was an endearing name, a nickname used among fellowship of friends. It ain't like, listen, it ain't like when certain people get together and they start calling each other the N-word. Because they think it's cool and they think it's like, this is the hip thing to do and we go, we like, we tight. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a name that was used. It was a nickname of endearment that you're my brother. And, it, and because he was from Cyrene in Libya, Africa, he was very dark. And so literally it translates from that time a black man. But it's not the vulgar, derogatory term that is used. And I want to just hit something with this. As I even watch you, here is about to be a Holy Spirit bullet to your heart. If you're smiling and laughing, you have issue with the Lord. Let me say it again. If you're smiling and laughing, the Lord has issue with you. I pronounced it correctly. Trust me, I had to study hard to make sure I didn't screw it up when I came up here. Like, it's referring to an endearing term. And I want to say this because I, I remember when I was growing up, this word, this word has so much history to it, right? And I would have black friends when I grew up in Flint, and they would call me this kind of like slurred at the end with an A, and it was like this thing is like we brothers. Can I tell you, like we were never made to call each other that as brothers, 
ever. And I remember growing up, I thought it was so cool. And it was like, man, you call me that. I'm like, I'm like now a part or something like, like you black, I'm white. This is great. But see, the, the Lord doesn't need all of these extra things to try to distinguish between us with color and stuff. If we've already been placed at the same level and the same grace, we don't need to do things like the world does. We don't need to make jokes of these things. We don't need these vulgarities. We don't need to even do it because it's like, oh, that's so cool. I feel like I'm a part now. I'm called that. I'm in with you. We don't need that stuff because color and background and how long you've known Jesus and how many verses you have memorized and that stuff, that stuff doesn't translate with God. It's not necessary with God. Because if we're all equal at the foot of the cross, same grace, same level, same Jesus, we don't need to talk like the world. We don't need to laugh about the things that the world laughs about. So let this be a conviction of our hearts that this stuff, that ain't funny. Now, again, over time, even a word like the N-word has been used in so many different capacities in history. But can we all just make it clear that we know that the way it's used in our world today is not well? The way that it's used is not a word that we should ever say as believers. And I could give you a list of other words that we don't distinguish between color or any journey that somebody's been through. Because if you're the same and you truly, listen, in your heart of hearts, if you see somebody as the same, they have the same opportunity to know Jesus that you do. The white, I'm, I'm talking to black, I'm talking to white, I'm talking to everybody in the room. If you think I'm talking to white people about not using it, you, you got me confused. I'm talking to all people about not using it. That's what I'm talking about right now. Simeon, called Niger. It was a very specific term that they used in that culture. And you're like, oh, well, I guess I can use it now. Listen, our culture has tried to ruin certain things that we just can't use. There's, it's not necessary to use it. But I'm going to talk about tonight. There's other things that our culture has wrecked that we need to start using again. And we need to take back. You see this brotherhood of people. Let me continue here. It says, Lucius of Cyrene. Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's the Apostle Paul. I'm going to explain it more about all this in extension. I don't got time. But what I want you to see with these people, I, as I described uh, Simeon a little bit here, this is an eclectic group of leaders. Why is that important? Because if there was racial, diver, uh, race, racial uh, indifference and divide, if there was prejudice, you were going to need an eclectic group of Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled leaders to show them that we are not divided by background or color or country or city that we came from or Jew or Gentile or any of that, but we're going to come together in unity. And what happened was as they begin to lead with unity through diversity, as they begin to do that, prejudice was crushed in the church of Antioch. There was no more divisions anymore. And this amazing group of five men began to usher that in. And two of them that I just want to focus on very quickly are the ones that spread the gospel and they helped start the church uh, in Antioch, they were the ones from Cyrene. That's Simeon and Lucius of Cyrene. Those two dudes came from a long distance to Jerusalem. Next thing you know, they are the ones that help usher in a move of God in Antioch. Don't be, don't be trying to fit in with, with, with the, what the world says and they talk about all these things about, well, these people don't have as much of a shot and these people are in front of these people. Do not fall for the traps and the lies of the enemy. Now, 
I'm not saying that there isn't things. I'm going off. I'm going off track. I'm going Holy Spirit for a second. I'm not saying that there isn't things that have not that haven't happened in our history of America. There is. But do not fall in the category of the world where you fall for the lies of how they identify white and black and all these. That stuff doesn't matter. Are you a follower of Jesus or not? That's all that matters. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus or not? That's all that matters. I don't care about the color of your skin. And we try to put so much identity in the things on the outside when God says he looks on the inside. And I know that's a big conversation. There's a lot to it. I'm not saying I can wrap it all up in one sermon, much less one minute. But stop trying to identify yourself different than God identifies you. Are you the same level, same grace or not? Because that's all that matters. In the end, that is literally all that matters. Because what was happening here in Antioch, I want to see it happen in Emily City. I ain't talking black and white. I'm talking Hispanics. I'm talking Asian. I'm talking every single race and ethnicity. You go a little bit farther, just down the, just down the street to, uh, like, Shelby area, man, you got, like, all types of Arab backgrounds and stuff like that. It, like, the world population open. It's like where all the restaurants are, people decide to live down there because it's all the good stuff, like Shelby area and all that. You know what I'm saying? We, we just all followers of Jesus. This is a generation, finally, that can do things the way Jesus wants them done. That we can rise up and we say, we're not going to make the jokes like the world does. You don't have to talk to each other with certain derogatory terms to feel like you need to be close to each other. You need to talk to each other like a brother and a sister in Christ. You need to encourage one another. You need to lift each other up. We need to celebrate that we're different. Not try to make it a thing of, well, you're different than me or like, I'm different than you. Yeah, we're different. But ain't we the same? Same image, same level, same grace. We the same. None of that was in my notes, so I'm just kind of going off track here for a second. Okay, back to the book of Acts. That's what you guys came for tonight, right? Or did you just come for whatever the Holy Spirit wants to serve up tonight? These two men are cool. Simeon and Lucius of Cyrene. All of these men, though, they're leaders of the church at Antioch, and this is cool. There's five of them, which means there was most likely five different congregations in Antioch. We would say it is five different churches. The reason I say congregations, many times we go, in Emily City, there's all these different churches. I would like to start looking at as many different congregations. You want to know why? Because when Jesus Christ looks at planet Earth and when he comes back for his bride, he ain't coming back for churches. He's come back for one church. And so we got a lot of different congregations, but we are one church. So there was these five different leaders that were all leading. What did they call it? The church at Antioch, but it's five different congregations. And they didn't look at it as, well, your church is growing more than mine, or man, you guys got an LED wall now. And they looked at it as, somos uno, via centines, raminu. We are one. Jesus isn't coming back for plural churches. He's coming back for his church. This is why we believe that the kingdom is greater than the house. Because what God is doing here is remarkable. It's special. And I promise you can't get anywhere else. Now let me go on the other side of my mouth. But also Jesus is moving all over planet earth. 
and we want to give towards it. We want to go and be a part of it. We want to bring people here from it. to be. We want to support the church of Jesus Christ. This is the kingdom. And this is what's happening right here in Antioch, one church. And so you got the five of them, right, Manan and Lucius and Simeon. So how did Barnabas and Saul get here? Like, why are they a part of the five? Because they're referenced earlier in Scripture, and now they're a part with these dudes. Because it says in verse 22 that news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of the Lord had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So Barnabas, it says that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord as he came there. So in the same way that you remember Peter and John, they're in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 8, word gets back to Jerusalem that revival is breaking out in Samaria. People are, Samaria? We don't even like Samaritans. And Jesus is showing off in Samaria. People are getting baptized in the Holy Spirit in Samaria. People are getting healed in Samaria. They're like, we got to go see this stuff. So Peter and John show up to Samaria as a support system to Philip. In the same way, Barnabas now, he's sent from Jerusalem to come to Antioch. And they're like, bro, you got to go check out what's going on there. We're hearing people are just like getting saved. And they've reached the Gentiles now. This is crazy. You got to check it out. So he shows up there. And then it says in the next verse, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, was there. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. See, the reason that, that Barnabas needed to go get Saul, because it's really cool if you go watch the extension, it's amazing how it all breaks down. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he's like bouncing around like a beach back at a Nickelback, uh, what is it, beach ball or Nickelback concert, that's how you say it. Like a nickel at a beach ball concert, beach boys concert. Okay, so he's like all over the place, and he's going from Damascus, and he's, he's in Arabia in the desert, and, he, and what he does is he makes his way back to Tarsus where he grew up as a boy. I know what this is like coming back to where you grew up as a boy. It's different because everybody knows you at the public school. People know you all throughout the city. They've known me since I was nine years old here, and now I'm 35. So there's two variables that come with it. One, Jesus talks about how a prophet is not welcome in his own town. Many times they can be like, oh, that's just, that's just Dave. But in other ways, there's something that comes with it too. Like, we've watched this young man for over 15 years. Nope, 25 years. 25, that's a great number. That's good. But I am much older. Okay, so for 25, over 25 years, we've watched this guy. I'll never forget when people have hit me up. They're like, we've watched your life since you were 16. You said you are going to be a youth pastor. We've watched it. You are doing exactly what you said, said you would do. There's something about when you commit to your word. There's something about when you follow the move of the Holy Spirit on your life, you stay true to it, and what you let come out of your mouth, glorify the Lord, and then later people can take you up on it, check you up on it, and go, oh, so you are doing exactly what you said you were going to do. There's something special about that. So the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he's back at his hometown, and he's preaching. But Barnabas is like, hey, bro, I need your help here, dude. God's doing something. You know why I brought him? Because Paul had a specific calling on his life to preach. Specifically, God said to, about the apostle Paul, he'd be my chosen instrument that would stand before rulers, and he would go before the Gentiles. 
So Barnabas goes to get Saul to be like, hey, you got to come back here because there's great things. So he grabs him from Tarsus, brings him back to Antioch. Let me finish the verse. It says, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. It ain't just like a few people in some sort of like, devote, like devotional time in a living room. It's blowing up great number of people. And here it is. I've been waiting to say this. I've been pumped to say this. Are you ready for it? And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I want you to uh, watch how this is, ref- how it's said here. It's very important that you see the semantics of how this is written. It says the disciples were first called. You've heard of name calling, right? You usually don't name call yourself. You are name called. It says that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You know what that means? They didn't choose a name for themselves. They weren't sitting around going, you know what? We got to come up with a good name for this thing. They were just trying to follow Jesus. They were like, you know what? Christian. That's not how it happened. I'm going to break this down in, in an extension to really tell you how it formed, but the short version is this. They just looked at themselves as disciples. Uh, and in Acts 9, it's referred to they are followers of the way because Jesus was considered to be, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were just followers of the way. They were just disciples. They weren't trying to give themselves a label. Here's what was happening. As people were watching their lives, they saw that the message that they heard about called Jesus and the person that was known as Jesus Christ, they looked a lot like him. So they weren't walking around labeling themselves saying, I'm a Christian. They were called a Christian because they looked like Christ. And there's a lot of people labeling themselves Christians, but they don't look like Christ. So can I tell you, I use the word Christian because the Bible right here in Acts uh, 11, verse 26, I think, I think I just read here, at Antioch, that's why they were first called it. So can I tell you what, when I call myself a Christian, can I tell you what I mean? I mean that I'm a follower of the way. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. I, I am a disciple. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. When I say Christian, that's what I mean. But I know there's a lot of people that are labeling themselves not living that way. So here's what I'd like to teach you what you should do, and here's what I feel very convicted and compelled to do. What I label myself matters very little compared to what people label me as. What I see in myself matters very little compared to what people see in me. What I choose to call myself matters very little compared to what people choose to call me. And here's my philosophy. You can call me anything you want. I've been called church boy, preacher's kid, you name it. Just please call me something connected to his name. You labeling yourself means very little if people can't see Christ in you. But if you look like Christ, then you are a Christian. And Christian is an important word in Scripture that it literally has stuck with us this long, this many years after it's stuck. 
So let us not let the world abuse the word, the, the word and say, oh, we guess we can't say that. They've taken it. Listen, the world is trying to take everything. The world's taken the Sabbath on Sundays where sports events and everything happen on it. The, the world has kept all the restaurants open so we won't gather certain ways. The world is trying to take everything. Instead of us being concerned with what they're taking, let's be more concerned with what we're displaying. Because if we will simply display Christ, we'll get called by his name. Uh, there was a lyric I heard many years ago, and, and it just said, I want to be mistaken for Jesus. I think about that often because I will probably be the only Jesus that most people will see. I love this. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. At Antioch, like Luke's hometown, everything right here is being birthed. These five leaders, they get together, and it says, I'm going to go to Acts 13 now. We're going to go back, and this is what we're going to say. It says that they're together. What are they doing? It says in verse 2 that while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul apart from me for the work to which I have called them. That's where we started tonight, and that's, that's where we'll go now. And my prayer, Lord Jesus, set some people in this room apart. Do you know how you get set apart? You make sure that you're already set aside. You set yourself aside so you can be prepared to be set apart. Or what happens is when God will set you apart, he will then make sure you're set aside. I was praying for uh, different people this morning. I was even praying, I was praying for your marriages and your families and some of you that have this, this, this wrongful idea in your mind that because you've screwed up and you've done this and this and that, that you can't get this or this or that. I'm not going to like describe every layer of what that means, but you just did in your mind, so it's okay. And I just pleaded the blood of Jesus over you this morning as I prayed because what happens is it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It matters whether or not you're going to allow the Lord to set you apart and then from there, you will choose to be set aside for his glory. Lord, I'm going to get, I'm, I'm not even part of, I'm set aside for you. Because I've been set apart for what you have. So here he sets apart Barnabas and Saul. And I love how it words this. It says that while they were serving the Lord, that's how it says it. That's in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. You know what that means? The word serving translates that while they were ministering to the Lord. Can I help you understand that when you worship the Lord with a pure heart, clean hands, a clear conscience, many times what people do is they try to come here and they wait to the end of the message. They're like, oh, I can't wait to get to the end. I need to ask Jesus for forgiveness because I've been sinning all week. How about you just ask him for forgiveness before you get here so you can minister to him once you get here? Because see, the opportunity at the end of the message is for people that have yet to know Jesus, that they get that chance. If you already know the work and the grace of Jesus, why don't you just repent of your sin, apologize for being a bonehead like I've done for many years of my life, 31 of them to be exact, and why don't you come into a moment of worship with clean hands, a pure heart, and a clear conscience? And you know what you get to do? Serve the Lord. Translates, you get to minister to the Lord. And what they were doing is they were praying and they were singing songs and they were, they were fasting and they were ministering to the Lord. 
And as they were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit goes, hey, yeah, so now that my presence is here, I want to let you know those two dudes, yeah, they set apart. They're going to do something great. Everything good, everything of God springs up from ministry to the Lord. When I was 12 years old and I was called to be a pastor, do you know what I was doing? I was at a summer camp ministering to the Lord. When I was 16 and I was in my youth ministry with my youth pastor, I was watching what he was doing. You know what I was doing? Whether I was leading worship, whether I was behind the scenes, whether I was setting up games, whatever I was doing, I was ministering to the Lord. And I want to clarify that when I say clean hands, pure heart, clear conscience, I didn't always have that as I was ministering to the Lord. I think that many times the Lord is looking further down the line to see the intention of your heart, not the mistakes always of just your hands or your mind at the time. Because I can tell you God had to give me a lot of grace through your years because I was screwing up. But there comes a point finally, like I did when I was 16 after I was in much sin, 21, I decided to kind of taste taste it again, and then I decided to finally taste and see that the Lord was good again. I went through seasons, highs and lows. We all do in our humanity. But there comes points of repentance where I say, I'm done living this life. I can't date this person anymore. I can't go here anymore. I can't be friends with these people anymore. I can't listen to this anymore. I remember me and Pastor Steve, we had a, back in the day, believe it or not, there was these thing called CDs. And you put in a big CD player and these over-ear, like, Walkman headphones I had, right? Out of the Sony Discman I got. It was dope. I was 10. It was so sweet. And then you couldn't put it in your pocket. You just have to walk around holding that. And everybody knew you had a CD player. Like, yeah, you don't got one, sucker. You tape player. I got a CD player right now, you know. And, uh, man, we, we had so many CDs that didn't honor the Lord. Because the standard in my house growing up was no secular music. It was just a standard. If my parents said that, that is what it is. It doesn't matter what I think. If that's the standard, you live by the standard. Okay? And I did not. I was bumming CDs off of every person I could find of bands I should have never been listened to. Him and I, and it was like punk rock music. Now we turn the hate into love here, my brothers and sisters, okay? And, uh, and yeah, a lot of CDs. I remember the day where we couldn't handle the conviction of it anymore because why? The Lord had set us apart. And we just broke every single one of those CDs one at a time. Now, it sounds like it was a big deal, but they were all burned CDs, which meant stolen CDs. If I had paid like the, what were the 15 bucks, whatever, a CD, whatever, if I had paid that for every single one, that hurts a little more. But can I tell you, some of you, God is asking you to flush some dollars down the toilet. He's asking you to, to get rid of some things that have actually cost you money. But if you're going to be set apart for his glory, you can't have that stuff. So there comes a time for repentance. But I think when I talk about ministering to the Lord, I'm saying despite your mistakes and your failures, there's something about when you still say, Lord, I want to be like David, that even though I've sinned with Bathsheba, even though I've screwed up, what did, what did God say about David? He was a man after God's own heart. That you say, Lord, I want to be after your heart. Even when I feel like I'm thinking the wrong stuff, doing the wrong stuff, going the wrong places, I still want to be after your heart. And then you come, you repent before the Lord, and what do you do? You minister to him. And as you begin to minister to him, now just with singing here publicly, I did, it, I did it this morning. I turned on some worship music and I pleaded the blood of Jesus like I told you. When you just begin to spend time with him, even as you begin to walk around and there's no exact time of prayer scheduled or worship scheduled, but you walk around, I do it in my tongue language all the time underneath my breath. I pray in the Holy Spirit all the time. I walk around. What am I doing? I'm ministering to the Lord. And you will always find that as you minister to him, what does he do? He goes, well, thanks. Have a good day. He ministers back to you. 
And as he ministers to you, he sets you apart for something that you could have never, would have never chosen on your own. But it will be for his glory. And here, when these people are set apart, I was thinking about it. How did this happen? How did they know for sure they were set apart? How did they know the Holy Spirit spoke it? Well, how does it start? It says that there was leaders in Antioch. It starts off in verse 1. That were, what does it say? Prophets and teachers. So you know what a prophet does. A prophet will give a word, have a vision, and they'll speak something into existence that they're saying is of God. Do you want to know if somebody's prophetic? What they said will come true. If it doesn't, they just speak in a sound cool way. And the Lord said this. No, you said this. The Lord said, shut your mouth. Okay? But you'll know it's a prophet by doing this. As the Holy Spirit was speaking, it was, a, I believe, a prophetic word given as they were ministering to the Lord, probably by one, one of them there. And it was going to require a step of faith for them to go. So what do you do? You have to test the prophetic. You cannot trust what you don't test. Trusting requires testing. So what did, it, what did they do? How did they test it? It says here that the way they tested it, it says, then when they had fasted, prayed, and laid their hands. Let me just stop there. How did they test it? What were they just doing? They were fasting, praying, ministering the Lord. Prophetic goes forth. It's like, set apart these dudes. They're like, well, let's just make sure. What did they do again? Then they went back to fasting again, praying again, ministering the Lord again. And as they tested, they all felt clear in their heart. When the Bible says here that they laid their hands on them, you know what that means? They confirmed that we've tested and we approve and agree with what the Holy Spirit said. So many times there's different ways when we lay our hands on you when we pray. It means could mean different things. At times, it could be deliverance or it could be healing needed things. But when we lay, it could be we lay our hands on you and it's a, it's a move of the Holy Spirit and a filling of the Holy Spirit. But also there's times. You'll see we do it um, when our, we are when college students graduated recently, different moments like that. When we lay our hands, we are confirming the anointing on their life. We are saying as the leadership of this church, we see something in them and that God is going to use them for a specific purpose for his glory. So here the Bible says that they laid their hands on them in confirmation and then they sent them away. Do you realize that the word sent, that is where the word apostle derives from? Apostle means to be sent. Right here is the kickoff of the first missionary journey where they are sent for God's glory as the apostles of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit speaks, sets them aside. They're ready to go. Can I tell you, before Ferdinand Magellan before Christopher Columbus, before Lewis and Clark tried to encounter and navigate and explore the unknown world, there was the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, he went into this unknown world and he began to share the love of Jesus. He began to go, gospel, the gospel, began to share the good news of Jesus. At this time, he had only been a Christian for 12 years. Some of you are all like, Oh, when's God going to use me? How, like, how do I know? I want my calling and, and, and stuff. Like, and how long has it been? It's been 12 months. It was 12 years for the Apostle Paul before he really stepped fully into his ministry. It was 17 years at this point for Barnabas. But after now 12 years being a part of growing in their faith, 17 years then for Barnabas, it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down 
to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, the Bible says that they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Now, proconsul, just very simple, that word is a governor of a province in ancient Rome. So Sergius Paulus, this man, he summoned Barnabas and Saul, and they sought to hear the word of the Lord. I want you to catch this. They go on their first missionary journey. It's like, okay, we can tell everybody. And now a high-up dude, Sergius Paulus of the proconsul, this governor, he's like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come in here. Yes, tell me about the Lord. They're like, let's go. I'm about to preach to this dude. But I want you to know that always where, where God opens the door, the devil's trying to shut one. You got to know this. You're like, oh, man, none of that went how I wanted to sharing Jesus. I must have heard wrong with God. Have you? Have you just not realized that sometimes the devil's trying to attack the word of God going forward and he's trying to falsely accuse you? He's trying to discourage you. He's trying to, to beat you up in any way that he can. Because see here, as this opportunity opened up for them to speak to this governor, this official, at the same time they run into a magician. It translates that he was a sorcerer by the name of Bar-Jesus. <laughs> I love this because this dude was evil. This was, not a, this was a sinful dude. He was a charlatan. He was probably making money, and he was performing these magic tricks and this power and this sorcery. But I love that his name is Bar-Jesus. You know why? Bar-Jesus, it means son of Joshua. It translates a couple different ways. You know where Jesus' name came from? Jesus' name derives from the name Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua means the Lord saves. So Jesus' name literally meant, here I am, check it, I'm about to save you. I, the Lord, save. Jesus' name translates that way. So when Bar-Jesus translates son of Joshua, it translates to mean son of the Savior. And you know why I love this? Because even when this dude is in sin, even when he's evil, even when he's way off track with God, that doesn't change the fact that he is still a son of Jesus. It doesn't change the fact that his name by very nature identifies that God's hand is still close if he wants to get a hold of him. So it's this sorcerer. It's this magician. It literally it begins to lay it all out for us uh, here. It says in verse 8, but Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, and just so you're not confused, Bar-Jesus and Elimus is the same person. Elimus translates sorcerer. This dude shows up, Elimus, and he was opposing Barnabas and Saul, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him. Y'all do staring contests growing up? Just stared at him. So up until this point, this has been 17 years since Jesus has ascended. This is 47 AD. And if you read the first 13 chapters of Acts, he's always referred to by the name Saul. Luke, the writer, kept calling him Saul. Saul was his Jewish name. But from this point on, chapter 13 to chapter 28 of Acts, he's going to be called 
Paul, his Roman name. I think it might have had something to do with the fact that this was a transitional moment where he was about to fully launch his ministry and where he was known as Saul, the persecutor of Christians. Now he's going to be Paul, the powerful Christian. He's going to go out in the name of the Lord, and he's going to begin to do things that had never been done in history. So Elimus here, it says that he opposes Paul, I'll say it now, and Barnabas. This dude, man, he thought he was something. He thought he was a powerful dude, but he had yet to come in contact with the power of God. See, what happened is Paul and Barnabas, they get with the proconsul, this governor, Sergius Paulus, and they're getting ready to share the gospel, and they're so excited, and they're sharing it. But Elimus, a.k.a. Bar-Jesus, a.k.a. the sorcerer, he's freaking out because he had mind control over the proconsul. So he's freaking out like, oh, crap. If they follow these dudes and get Jesus, I won't be able to control him anymore. I won't be able to have power over him anymore. I won't be able to be in, in, in close proximity and standing with him anymore. So he starts freaking out. So he's like, I have to oppose Paul and Barnabas. And what, is, what does Paul do? I don't know exactly how it's done. I'd almost imagine possibly that Elimus tries to do some sort of like sorcerer thing on him or something like, like some Harry Potter wand thing or something. I don't know what he did. For, I, I imagine he tried to do something. What does Paul do? Just stares him down. I'm preaching at times. People will talk to me. They'll come up to me later. They're like, man, when you were saying this one specific thing, I felt like you were staring through my soul. I go, well, I was just making eye contact with you, but okay. I go, I go that was God. That was God, like, staring then. But people are like, you were staring at me. There's something about Paul just calm, cool, and collected just stared at him. What was he saying? He was like, you think I'm intimidated by you? I do it with some of y'all at times. People will come, and I can tell that they're not impressed with what I'm talking about. Um, not even like that they don't think I'm doing a good job. It might be. Don't care. But it could be also like they just don't like that I'm talking about Jesus, whatever it is. I'm just like, what else were you expecting? We're in a church. What was I going to talk about? Oh, I'll talk about Buddha. I'll talk about Allah. It just ain't going to be in the way that people are going to like it. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And so I will actually do it at times. I can tell people don't like it. I'll, ch I'll choose somebody I know in the audience right now. And I'll just preach. And I'll, I'll just, I'll stare at them. I'm just like, you think I'm, you ain't going to intimidate me. People will be like, I've had it before when I'm preaching. People are like laughing, talking. I can tell they're making jokes about me. I just stare at them. Why? I, it's the same thing I do. I'm not intimidated by you. You ain't going to stop me from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been called to preach this. You can say and do what you I love it. If people aren't going to say something about me in the room, they'll say something about me online. I love it. I, what I started doing is actually screenshotting these things, and I put them in a folder. And the folder is called Good Days Only. So when I'm having a really good day and I can feel like I'm floating a little higher and I need to come back to planet Earth, I'll read one of those comments. Recently, I was actually wearing these jeans, and somebody goes, this must not be a pastor because if he's wearing those jeans, it's against the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, so that one, my good days only folder. That's just a good chuckle when you need a good, good laugh. It should be for bad days only, but I only do it on, on good days. It's like, I'm feeling really good today. Let me read something to pull me back down. Okay. Paul stares at him. He says, I'm not intimidated by you. So look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him. <laughs> 
Instead, this is what he says to Elimus. You who are full of all deceit and fraud. Whew, here it goes. You son of the devil. You son of Satan. That's good. You enemy of all righteousness. Will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? You notice how the Bible indicates right here how both Saul and Elimus, they're full of something. You see it? It said that Elimus is full of evil, deceit, fraud, unrighteousness. But it says Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, you're going to be full of something, full of yourself. But thank God I'm full of the Holy Spirit, so it helps me when I'm being full of myself. You're going to be full of something. It says that Elimus is full of evil, but... Paul is full of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you, I love, I love when the Bible drops a good but. That Paul is full of evil, but we just read it. I love buts in the Bible. I'm telling you. The Bible, no, the Bible has some good buts. It does, some nice ones. Some nice buts, it does, it does. Comp this clip, put it out, say, I, I'm saying it. The Bible has nice butts. It does. All throughout it. When a, when a butt drops in the Bible, okay, I'm telling you when it does, it's the setup that something good is about to happen. When there's a good butt in the Bible, drama is about to follow. You know that when a good butt in the Bible comes, that drama is on the way. I'm going to read it for you. I want you, to, I want you to catch it, okay? It says it here. Verse 8. Look at we just read. It says, but Elimus, see? But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them. Look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him. But Elimus, but Paul. I need you to get this. Everybody has a but. You're not getting it. Everybody has a but. Elimus has a but. You got a but. And I got a but. Everybody has a butt. And I'll tell you, there's something like you read the scripture, you can see butts all over scripture. All over. And the scripture is clear here that Elimus came out with his butt opposing the message and the messengers of God. We just read, but Elimus was a pope. We just, this is what hell does. Hell tries to rally the flesh of people so that they come out opposing the word of God, the people of God, God himself with their butts. They do it all the time. And they do it loud and they do it clear. And Elimus, this, this sorcerer, he came out and his butt was, it was powerful. It was. It was. You see, you, see this today, you see this today in our culture. You see this with nonprofits. You see it with movements. You see it with businesses. 
they all coming out with their butts. They are. They are. And see, they're making so much noise, and they're making it so intimidating, and their butt is so much to take in. They're going so hard with it that we sit there like, what do we got? You see, the noise and the volume that they're yelling with and the way they're taking over stores and the way that they're, everything that they're doing right now in our culture, the butt of our culture, the alignment of our culture, they're doing it so hard, we don't know what to do. But we're forgetting one really important principle of the Bible, one really important fact, a truth to God's word. Alimus had a butt, but I need you to know that Paul had a butt too. And I need you to know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a child of the living God, then you got a big butt. I need you. Why? Why? Why you got a big butt? I need you to know this. Why you got a big butt? Because everybody has a butt, but not everybody got a big butt. But see, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you got a big butt. Why? The Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, it's no longer I, but Christ that lives in me. So when I say it's Paul's butt, you know what I'm talking This is God's butt I'm talking about right now. It's, if it's no longer you that lives, but Christ that lives in you, it ain't just your butt. It's a big butt, and it's God's butt. Come on. Somebody needs to rejoice in the house that God has a big butt. Somebody needs to be thankful that God's got the biggest butt of any butt, of every butt, of butts that existed about butts of butts of butts. Nobody's butt is as nice as God's butt. Nobody's. So Alimus comes out with his butt thinking that it's something. But Alimus, the Bible says. And he's trying to oppose and he's thinking he can do what he wants to do. But see, what he didn't realize is the Bible says that Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. So when it says, but Paul, when Paul comes out with his butt, you know what's happening? He's coming out with God's butt. And here's what begins to happen. I want you to see how the scripture breaks down. When it says that right here, that Paul began to stare at him. What he's saying is that he was not going to be intimidated because he wasn't just operating in his own power. You still follow me? Follow me, okay? <laughs> he wasn't operating in his own. He wasn't operating in his own butt. There was a bigger butt at play here. This is God's butt. And I think y'all y'all forget this because there is even something in our culture with not knowing who's real and so many fake injections and implants and all these things about everybody trying to make everything bigger and better and all this stuff. But listen, you don't need to do things the way the world does. If you will just make sure that it's Jesus that's the center, don't worry, you'll have a nice big butt. Don't even worry about it. So what does it do? What does Paul do? It says that he stares at Elimus. In verse 11, he says, Now behold... The hand of the Lord is upon you. Yeah, you. You thought your butt was big? I got one coming. And you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him. 
by the hand. What am I trying to say? Paul, with his God-sized big butt, came over to Elimus' little bubble butt. And he goes, I need you to know that what you think is impressive is not that impressive because the butt that I have is a nice, big, fat, juicy, God-sized butt. And he began to speak with the authority of the Holy Spirit. And he popped that butt, somebody, because God's got a big butt. Come on, are you thankful that God's got a big butt? So what happened after this? At Paphos, what happened? Paul and Barnabas are on this first missionary journey. They're just trying to share the gospel. They come in contact with Sergius Paulus. They try to be encountered by Elimus' butt. And then what, what does uh, the Bible say? What was the repercussions in this city? What happened? As they rebuked and came against hell, and as they stood upon the truth of God's word, what happened? The Bible says in verse 12, then the proconsul, this governor, this man, Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is the power of Jesus. This is the power of when the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The message was confirmed by the miracle. They didn't need a miracle in this case to get their attention. They walked out with faith in, in this chapter, chapter 13. Every chapter is different because God is working and using us different all the time. But in this case, they stepped out with the message. And it became the miracle that confirmed the message. Can I just tell you here tonight, I'm a firm believer in God's miracle working power. I'm a firm believer in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message that sets people free. Do you know why I believe that God is still a miracle-working God today? Because he's still a soul-winning, soul-saving God. And if he's still about soul-winning, that means he's still about miracle-working. So what we're called to do is step out not by might or power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. What we're called to do is not step out like the rest of the world with our but we're called to step out with something much greater because it's no longer I, like Paul said, that lives. I'm dead. And can I tell you, I've had to die over and over and over again in this lifetime. Die to myself that I might live in Christ. That's the power of baptism is we're declaring that I'm dead and I'm alive. Well, what if I screwed up afterwards? You're declaring what you're committing to do for the rest of your life. It's not that one baptism that's now made sure that you'll never screw up again. It's that you've declared this is what it looks like. So now every day I declare I am crucified with Christ. That as he died for my sins, I'm willing to die to my sin. To say I'm done with this. Oh, gosh, I screwed up again. Do it again. I'm done with this. Oh, script. I feel like I lived my years 16 to like 21. Felt like I was a broken record saying the same thing to God over and over and over again. But you know what the difference is between me and many in those years? I never stopped dying. Ever. 
because the problem was I never stopped sinning. So as long as I kept sinning, I needed to keep dying. And so I would just come to the altar or I, at a time alone with the Lord in my room or wherever it was. I might be walking somewhere and my eyes might have deceived me or my mind might have tricked me or I would have said something I wish I wouldn't. Have. I just would repent to the Lord and I would die all over again. Because listen, if Christ had to die in order to live, Scripture is very clear that we're going to have to die with him in order to live with him. So if you're not willing to die to yourself, you're not able to live with him. And I want to have eternal life. I want to be able to have Jesus there with me every day for the rest of my life, not burning in hell for all of eternity. Because that is our choice on the table. People try to talk purgatory. People try to talk like, well, I'm just going to go in the ground. ground. You're telling me that we're going to live an entire life and the only thing worth living for is to one day go in the ground and to no longer do anything else past that? That's as good as it gets? Or is it that woven into our DNA, every fiber of our being is Jesus? Is it that we have been born and bought because of the blood of Jesus? Is it because we are made in his image? Is it because this life actually matters? And that's where when scripture says life is but a vapor, meaning it's very short, it's here and it's gone, that we have X amount, very few days to use them for God's glory that we might get to forever be in his glory surrounded in heaven. Paul did something so special that I feel is the call on our life. He opened the window of the world. And as he looked out, he recognized Jew, Gentile, broken, hurting, religious, and self-righteous, and rich and poor and he he opened and he saw that they were in need of Jesus it's very hard to care about other people needing Jesus if you are still alive because you don't start having that kind of compassion and empathy and insight and wisdom without the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit cannot live in you if you're still alive Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about taking your life physically. I'm talking about giving your life spiritually. The Lord never asked you to take anything. He asked you to give something. Give him your life. Die to yourself. Die to your wants and desires and flesh and things that you know take you off track. That you might live. That you might have life and life to the fullest in Jesus. So bow your heads, close your eyes with me. And if you're here tonight and you, uh, you know that's you, that you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, that he's not the Lord and Savior of your life, you know that maybe you've been living for all of your own stuff, living for yourself, but you need to die to all of those things if you're going to receive Jesus. I want to just give you an opportunity to turn over your life to him, to commit all that you have to him. If you've done this before, that's, a, that's okay. You can even right there where you are, just repent before the Lord. If, if you've already given him your life, just repent to him. Just talk to him. He, he forgives you. He loves you. Just keep walking for him. But if you're here and you've never been able to take that step, I always just want to give an opportunity to people in the room. I want to celebrate you here tonight 
that you want to give your life to Jesus. And if that's you, I, I just really believe so strong that if you're not willing to stand up in this room, and I want you to come forth and stand with me right here. I want to stand with you. I want to just celebrate you. If you can't stand up for Jesus here, you won't do it anywhere or everywhere else. So if that's you, I want to welcome you at this time. I want you to just stand up right where you are, get out of your seat, and come meet me right here. I'm just going to give just a, a quick moment here to allow people to make this step if you need to. what I just felt so clear tonight for everybody else in the room. I just felt it so clear that if we're going to live the life that God has for us, if we're going to live like the Apostle Paul, if we're going to if we're going to stand up against the forces of evil in this world, if we're going to stand for the name of Jesus, if we're going to go to the Gentiles when nobody else is, if we're, if we're going to do this, we really need to see the simple principle of what's taking place here in the life of the early church. And I'm just going to like kind of pray this over you. This is not like a, this is not like a, a stand and respond. This is like right where you are. I'm going to pray this over you in a second. But I want you to get this in your spirit. They were dead set realizing the importance of ministering to the Lord understanding that when they gathered, it was their opportunity to seek the Lord, understanding that on their own, they would fast and they would pray. I want to get this in you. Learn this at a young age and, and, and run this by your parents, however this will look or whatever, because I'm not looking to tell you don't eat or something. Your parents are like, what did that youth pastor tell you? Like, I'm just saying like fasting with the Lord, cutting things off in your life and giving him your undivided attention is necessary if you want to live a life that's set apart. Daily worship, daily Bible reading, daily prayer. If we are going to be a set-apart people, a unified people, a people that are marked by the Holy Spirit, then we're going to have to look into the origin, the early church, how they did it, and we just got to do it exactly like that. We don't need to do anything different, anything special, anything new. We just need to follow what they did. What does that mean? That means when Jesus says, go, we go. That means when he says talk to all people, that means we talk to all people. We talk to people that we feel like they, if they're dirty or they smell or we don't want to be around them, we, we talk to people that, that feel, look like they have everything, but maybe they're just dead and they're broken inside and they hate their lives, but on the outside they look like they have it all together. We talk to people of every color. We go to anybody, we go to everybody, and we're willing. When God says to do it, we do it. Do you know how you know when to do that? It's because you are so focused on ministering to the Lord that you're not going to miss when he speaks. We're going to be a church. We're going to be a people, his people, that we care about the music that we listen to because we don't want anything in our ears that taints our heart. We're going to care about what we watch because we don't want our eyes to be looking at anything that disallow us from seeing Jesus. We're going to be generous. When people have needs, we're going to give to them. We're going to be servants. When people have needs, we're going to serve them and help them. We're going to be unified. 
we're going to be his people. So this is different. I just felt this in my spirit. I'm, I'm literally just going to pray over you. And I, I want you to stand with me here tonight. If you're ready to receive this, just right where you are, across this room, everybody stand. And I want you to sort of position yourself. We're just going to worship together just for a quick moment. But I want you to even right now as I pray, position yourself to begin to minister to the Lord. And as I pray over you, I want you to just begin to minister to him with your own words, with your own heart. Just kind of talk to him. And this can be a little bit different. But Lord, I pray over every heart, every person in this room, every need, everything that's in front of us right now. And I just ask that God, you'd begin to minister to hearts that would stir them to want to learn how to minister to you. That you would quicken them and you would show them what it looks like to follow your voice, to go where you say to go, to do what you say to do, to be who you've called them to be. I ask, Father, that you'd begin to show them what it looks like to be representatives, not only of your name, but of your face, Christians that exemplify, that are called Christians because we look like Christ. Would you show us, Jesus? We just recognize right now that we're flawed, that we fall short, that we mess up many times. But we ask tonight, God, that would, would you just begin to fill people in this room that have not yet received, would you fill them with the Holy Spirit tonight? Would you fill those of us that, Lord, we've been filled before, but we want an overabundance more of you tonight, God. We need you. We're desperate for you. We're crying out for you. I pray that you would put hunger pains inside of the hearts of peoples. In their guts tonight, God, a hunger pain to need more of you. The stirring of what God wants to do in a generation starts with just one or two people that are hungry for it to happen. I pray that you would give them eyes to see you and to see like you, that God, when they look out, they would open the window to the world and they begin to see the people that are in desperate need of Jesus. I pray that you make their heart begin to beat in time appropriately with rhythm, with the heart of God, the things of God, the word of God, that they would beat for what you beat for, break for what you break for, and be who you've called them to be. Jesus, I thank you for your presence here tonight. I thank you for how you're ministering to people. But more than that, I pray that there will be a ministry that comes from this room to your heart tonight. An authentic, genuine, real ministry of young people in this room that are desperate, Lord, crying out in love with you, Jesus, that just want to touch the throne room of God and just minister to you for a second. So God, I thank you for what you're doing. We receive it. We welcome it. And we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen. Come on, lift your hands.